Good morning. Good morning. Hey, I'm Matt Avery. I'm the pastor here at Midtown West, and um, thankful that y'all are here with us. So this summer, we have been in this series in the Song of Solomon. We've been calling it, um, what have we been calling it? Summer of Love is what we've been calling it. Just had a brain lapse there. Um, and as we've been going through this series, really, this is just, this is everything. This is everything that we were made for. This is uh, you and I were made for this intimate relationship with Jesus, with the God who created us and formed us and calls us to himself. And he is, is allowing us to experience this intimacy with him even now. There is a future, there is a day coming where we will experience perfect intimacy with him at the deepest level that we don't even know is possible at this point. And that day is coming and that will be our forever. Um, but even now, uh, this is our reality. And I was thinking about this this week as we were with some friends who are, are building a home and they're long-term in this rental house for over a year. And it's, it's you know, this is their life and they're gonna be in this home. Their, their life is not on hold until they get in their new house. They're living their life now. They're, they're making memories. They have their stuff there. They have their family there. It's their inner sanctum, but it's not their forever home. And even as they live there, they dream about the home that's coming. They have meetings about the home that's coming. They're planning, they're thinking, they're moving toward this home. But even now, uh, in this rental house, this is where they're living life. And that, that life together as a family is happening now. And so this is the last week of our, our study in this song. And we're calling this week Love and Eternity. And so we're, we're here. Whoever's reading scripture, you can come on up. But we're in this the last two verses of this entire song, and it's this very fluid ending that just points us to the eternal nature of covenant love. It doesn't fade with age. It doesn't weaken with age. It doesn't wear out. It actually grows stronger and stronger and stronger. And so um, we're going to be reading uh, Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. That was my line. That's your line. <laughs> O oh, you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, come. Come as, as this woman prays for her beloved. Please come quickly. You who are powerful, you who are strong, you who are good, you who are full of life and joy and overflowing with life. Lord, we feel dry, we feel tired, we feel lacking. Lord, come remind us of what we have in our love with you. Come remind us whose we are. Come remind us uh, who you are. Come remind us and help us to live into this new life that you've given us, Lord. Don't leave us here languishing. Don't leave us here thinking that uh, none of this begins until eternity. Don't leave us here trying to satisfy ourselves with, with what we see here. But Lord, draw us to yourself. Don't let us rest until we find our rest in you. And uh, thank you for keeping your promise that your word never comes back void. It always bears fruit. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this passage begins the first line. This is the last exchange between this man and this woman. And if you haven't been with us up until now, what this is, is this is a song. This is a poem about uh, the, the King Solomon, who at that time was the most powerful, most handsome, most wealthy 
man on this planet. And it's about his love with this woman who is uh, a peasant. She is a farmer. She is a nobody, but he finds her deeply beautiful. And it's about their love from the beginning, from this desire and courtship through their covenant marriage, through the end of this marriage, which is there is no end. And so this song is not a historical account of a real relationship, but what it is, is it's this picture of covenant love. It is the song of songs. It is the greatest song of all time because it is about the greatest subject matter of all time, which is covenant love. Yes, between a man and a woman in marriage, it's the gift that marriage is. But more than that, and what marriage itself points to, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, is all of this is pointing to our relationship with Jesus, this unending covenant love between God and his people. And so here we have, as we've, we've been through the ups and downs with them, we've seen the bumps, we've We've seen the glories, and now it's this last exchange between this man and this woman. It's the last picture we get of their covenant love with each other. And as he begins, uh, and so one of the things that's going to happen is is we're going to move pretty fluidly between uh, this picture of this man and this woman and and us with with our Jesus. And so what, what this man says to her is he says, Oh, you who dwell in the gardens... And if, if you've been with us, you know that there's a lot of talk about the, the garden is this picture of this intimate inner sanctum where they go together. This is their place of covenant love. It's their marriage bed. It's everything. It's, their, it's the place where they, only, they are the only ones there. They're the only ones who have access to this place where it's the deepest love, the deepest expression, the truest expression of themselves with each other in this freedom and this strength of covenant love. And so he says here, oh, you who dwell in the gardens. But what he's saying here is, is he is telling her something about her identity. And he's telling us something about our identity. Because in Christ, you and I are garden dwellers. That's who we are. Uh, and what does that mean? I mean, on the, take it on its face. It's somebody who dwells, who tarries, who lives, who makes their home in this cultivated space of beauty and life. That's what a garden is. It is a It is not wild. It is not random. It is this cultivated space of beauty and life. Gardens bring forth fruit that is beautiful and good for food. And that is where we live with our Jesus. We live in a cultivated space that he is cultivating for us. The dwelling place of God and man together. It's us being united with him in our beings, our very beings. It's the garden of our souls. And what was formerly dead and dry and lacking now is a flourishing thing of beauty because of what he's created when he has come. He who is life has come into our souls and he has united himself with us. And now there's something beautiful growing. And we are being cultivated by him in this garden of our love where we live together. And so just want to pause there and say, do you realize what we're saying when we say that? Don't pass over this. The God of the universe has come through Jesus to make his home in your very soul, in the corest, most deepest root place of your being. The God of the universe who is perfection, who is, is goodness, who is eternity, who is life, who is flourishing, dwells within you. He has made his home in you forever, will never leave. And it has nothing to do, I, I think a huge mistake that we make, that I make all the time, is that the reality of that has to do with how I'm feeling that day. 
It has nothing to do with how you're feeling. That is truth for you all the time, every day. That the God of the universe has made his home in your soul. And he's inviting us to be there with him. But I want to back out and not just talk about where we are right now, but I want to talk about the, the beginning and the end. This, this big picture, zoom out, 30,000 foot view that we are garden dwellers in a deeper sense of that word. In a more literal sense, uh, we have always been garden dwellers. Genesis 2, 8 through 10, we see this cultivated place of beauty and life and goodness perfected by God for him to dwell with man from the very beginning of creation. So listen to this, Genesis 2, 8 through 10. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So think about this. Already the world was perfect. And then he created an even more beautiful place, the garden, for God to dwell with man. He planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. So this picture of God and man in this beautiful place. And then of course, if you know the story, um, we being our, our foremother and father, uh, the first people ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as, as God said, commanded them not to. And so we were locked out of this garden but here's the thing, it was for our own good. They were locked out of this beautiful place for their own good so that they could be redeemed, so that we could be redeemed. In, in Genesis 3.22, it says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And one of us, he's talking about himself in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this community that he's created us to be a part of. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then he says, we're going to cast him out. They're, like God is casting man out of the garden so that he cannot eat from the tree of life in the state that he is in. Separated from God. He is casting him out so that he can redeem so that he can bring us back to a place where we can dwell with him in perfect union, in perfect holiness, without any taint of sin. And so begins this great redemption story that is the whole of human history. Jesus has come and accomplished this redemption. He came into the wilderness to get us, to cover our nakedness and shame with himself. Genesis 3.15, he's, he's talking, God is, after this sin is committed, this rebellion is committed, he talks first to the serpent, to the evil one, who has brought this temptation, and he says, I will put enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring. The woman's offspring, talking about Jesus, will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. This is what's coming. And then Genesis 3.21 says, and the Lord God after he cast them out of the garden, he made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. They were wearing fig leaves, remember? And he said, no, 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 that's not going to cut it. And so he, he shed blood and made garments of skin for them. And so this is all pointing to our Jesus, who has come into the wilderness to take our sin and shame and to put 
himself to, to in a sense, cover us with his blood. As, as Adam and Eve were covered as a picture, a foretaste of what was coming with these animal skins where blood was shed, now God has fully covered us. He's covered all of our sin and shame and nakedness with the blood of Jesus, with the perfection of Jesus. And now what he has made possible is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? We don't need a temple anymore because you are the temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. And also collectively, not just individually, but collectively, Ephesians 2.22, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so this, this second part of verse 13, where he says, you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, um, we are not alone in this garden. We're in this garden together, and we're listening for each other's voices because now in Jesus, we have the words of life. Now he speaks to us through each other. That's why we need each other. That's why this matters, is he is building us together into a dwelling place for his Holy Spirit. As his Holy Spirit already dwells in each of us individually, he also dwells in us collectively. That's why we talk about Thursday prayer so badly, so, so passionately, is because this is so important for us. We, we are being built together, not just a bunch of individual tall and skinnies, right? Like we are being built together in this, and we all hate those, right? Okay, so think about that. Some of you live in them, that's okay. We love you. We don't love them. Um, I might regret that. Anyway, um, so this is true now for us. We, the garden dwellers, who were made to dwell in the garden with our God, have been cast out for our protection because of our sin. That sin has been covered, and now we live essentially in this rental house. We are living with him. We're not waiting for life to begin. Life is now. He is in us now. He is speaking to us now. He is strengthening us now. He's encouraging us now. He's giving new life to us now. He's transforming us now. We can enjoy being with him now. But we don't stay here. There is something coming. We are going back to a place that we have never been before. We're going back to the garden. So in Revelation 21 and 22, the, the end of Scripture, uh, we hear this from John, who God gives the apostle John a vision of what's coming. And he says this, I saw no temple in the city. Remember, we don't need that anymore. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's Jesus. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, so here's something cool. We're not just going back to the garden. We're going back to this garden city. It's the best of both. It's this combination now. It's this garden city where we are dwelling in God's presence forever. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life, the tree of life is there again with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So we were made to live in the garden we get a foretaste of living in the garden now, and we're going back to the garden. And we are hardwired for this. We are always trying to get back to a place that we have never been before. Do you know that? Do you know that that's what you're doing when you are experiencing the day-to-day -day ins and outs of this life, and you are groaning and you are longing? You are trying to get back to the garden because that's where you were made to live. 
I went on a trip with my sons this weekend. We went canoeing with my dad and we were catching crawdads. And those crawdads were always trying to jump out of my, our hands and get back in the water and go under those rocks. Because there's something in them like that's where I need to be. And that's what you have in you. That's what I have in me is there's this thing in us that we are always trying to get back to this place that we've never been before. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity into the hearts of man. And we are, we are longing for that eternity. We're longing for ultimate rest, ultimate peace, ultimate security, ultimate home. And it's so, so desperately important that you and I realize that that's what's happening inside of us. Otherwise, we're going to spend our lives on this wild goose chase and going to end up a lot more damaged and hurting than we were when we started. So again, like I said, even now there is this garden dwelling, like even in the midst of this wilderness, even in the midst of pain and suffering and sin, there is a garden dwelling. We live in the wilds, but we also dwell in gardens at the same time. This is what David is talking about in Psalm 23, five and six, where he says this, you God prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I'm not in this place of perfect peace. I'm in the midst of chaos and crazy and people are trying to kill me. But even here, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You are providing, it's this strange picture, but it's real if you've experienced it. This, it's God is in the midst of, of people trying to kill us. God is preparing this lavish banquet for us with oil running over our heads. He's like, you are the royal sons and daughters. And the, t the cup is overflowing and the table is full of good and beautiful food because he's not threatened by the things that we're threatened by. He knows that he has us in his grip and there's nothing that can tear us from him. So that's how we are able to have this feast with him in the middle of, of this crazy wilderness that we live in. And then David goes on and says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That word follow is not like someone politely walking behind you. That word follow means it's, it's actually used most of the time for people trying to hunt someone down and kill them. Mercy and goodness, the mercy and goodness of the Lord will hunt me down all the days of my life. I cannot live in this place where I think that I'm in lack. I cannot live in this place where I think God is far from me because I am his and he will hunt me down with his love. All the days of my life, I cannot get away from it and I will dwell. It won't end when I die because I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jeremiah 17 also talks about this evergreen quality of God's people, even in the midst of this crazy world that we live in now, even in the midst of this rental house where we live with him, it says this, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. Because guess what? Heat is coming. Heat is here now. Heat is coming. For its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought. It will live through a year of drought. It will live through suffering. But it will not cease to bear fruit. That is our current reality as we dwell in the garden of our love with our Jesus awaiting the garden that is coming. So what does this look like here? And I think that's really important and practical for us, right? Is if I'm going to try to live this life and access what is true here, I need to have a sense of what this feels like. And so here's, 
in these two verses together, this is a picture, these two movements of what it feels like to live this life with our Jesus in this intimate covenant love, even before we get to the place where all the tears are dried up and everything's perfect. And here's how it goes. Verse 13 is movement one. Jesus moving toward us, saying, let me hear your voice. Remember in, in uh, chapter two, verse 14, I know you all do. Um, just kidding. This is, sounds an awful lot like what her beloved says to her in that verse. In that verse, he says, let me hear your voice. It is sweet to me. Let me see your face. It is lovely to me. And he's saying the same thing here before marriage and now deep into their, their covenant love together. That love is not fading. That desire is not fading. And that's true for Jesus with you and with me. He desires to hear your voice. How encouraging is that? He desires to hear everything. Just the same way you desire to hear that from people that you love deeply. I don't want you to just come to me when it's perfect. I want you to tell me what you're afraid of. I want you to tell me what is wrong right now. I want you to tell me about the pain you're experiencing. I want you to tell me what you're angry about and what you're hurting about and what you don't like about how I'm letting your life unfold. Whatever it is, everything, anything, let me hear your voice. Please, that's what I want. That's what Jesus wants. Can you imagine that? That is true. I don't want you to just tithe and show up at Sunday worship. I want to hear you. I want your heart. I want to experience you. I want us to live together in this deep union. And that love does not fade. Revelation 3.20 says the same thing. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You know what? We live too much based out of our feelings and we interpret reality too much out of our feelings. Because the reality here is there is never, we, we should never fear. There's never a possibility that Jesus will not be there. When we go to open the door, he will not have left. He is always there. He is always there wanting us, wanting to be with us, wanting to experience us and us with him and wanting us to experience his fullness. That is who Jesus is. And it does not matter how we feel. So that's the first movement, and it's absolutely necessary, and it doesn't just happen once. It happens all the time. Why? Because he knows that in these bodies of flesh, our hearts tend toward fear because of who we are and what we've done. It is hard to believe the truth of the gospel. So Jesus, it's not sufficient for him to just tell us one time, hey, I love you. Come spend time with me. He's got to tell us that over and over and over and over and over again, all the time, every day, multiple times a day. Because the natural tendency in our hearts is as we drift away from him in our pride and our fear. We try to find life apart from him. Then we feel guilty about it and we don't desire him. So then we don't want to go back to him because we're afraid of what he's going to say to us or what he's going to do to us. And we have to hear him say that first to unlock movement two, which is us back to Jesus saying, Make haste, my beloved. Come quickly to me. I can't say that if I'm afraid of him. And I can't say that if I actually want a bunch of other things more than I want him. 
I have to get to a place where he lovingly bottoms me out of all my addictions to lesser things. And I have to be reminded, hey, 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 I love you. My love for you is not dependent upon your behavior and your love for me. That's not love. That's a contract. But I love you because I've chosen to love you. And you need to hear that. And so when we hear that, we remember We always, always need to remember. We come back to the gospel. We come back to what's true. We come back to his love for us. And we are strengthened and given the hope that we need to actually let our guard down and desire him back. I can't do that unless he is just constantly saying to me, I love you. Please come be with me. And then when we are sober, when we remember who we are, we remember who he is, then we will say back to him, like the woman in this passage in verse 14, hurry, please hurry, don't delay, please come to me right now and give me life. My heart is always tending toward coldness and death in this body of flesh. Please come wake me up from my slumber. Come in your youth and your strength and your passion and make me young again. My heart, my garden is lying dormant. Please come wake me up. Thrill my soul. Knock the black ash off of my heart and set it on fire again. That is the dance of life in this world. As I'm always needing to remember, I'm always needing to hear his love for me does not depend on me. And then that strengthens me and opens me up to bring him, uh, invite him in again. You know, it's, it's interesting here that she says in verse 14, make haste, be like a young stag. She's recognizing something here that we often forget, which is, as one of my favorite artists, John Mark McMillan says, God is young and we're the ones who grow old. We're the ones who get tired and boring. We're the ones who run out of steam. God is young. He is vibrant. He is flourishing. He is full of joy, full of life, full of creativity. He's not this boring picture of this old man with a long beard in the sky who is just getting older and older and and less in touch with reality. God is, is life. We are the ones who need waking up. We are the ones who need resurrection. And so she is saying what we are saying. Come in your youth and make me young again. Remind us who we are. Uh, we recently watched Hook with our boys. Um, and I was just thinking about that in, in, in the context of what we're talking about here. You know, Peter, Peter Panning, the attorney, you know, and his, his heart is just dead. He's cold and dead and he's gone the way of the world, which is as you age, you get more serious and you get older and you get slower and you you get more boring and you harden into these ways of being. And so this whole journey of he's got to remember who he is. He's got to go back and remember that he is Peter Pan and what it is to be Peter Pan. And there's that great scene where the little boy grabs his face and he says, Peter, it is you. And you see, he doesn't turn into a child again, right? He stays who he is, but he becomes young. He becomes full of life. He becomes flourishing. His heart is awakened again. He's alive again. He has passion again. He can love again. And that is a picture of us in Jesus as he's doing this work in us. It's not this 
Like this world is not where everything's going to be perfect. We are going to grow old. We live in these bodies of flesh. We are going to get old. Our bodies are going to slow down and we're going to move toward death in this life. But what is a lie is that because we are a certain age and we are moving in that direction, that that necessarily changes the way that we live and the way that we see the world and what is open to us and how open our hearts are and how full of passion we can be and how full of life and flourishing we can be. Those are two different things. And so when I remember whose I am and who I am in the love of, of Christ for me, when we do that, then we join the Apostle John and what he says at the end of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And this is why all of our disappointments and suffering is redeemed by Jesus in this life because these are actually uh, severe mercies because they help us get back on track. As we divert and we pursue lesser things that will not satisfy us, those disappointments are gifts from him to get us back on the path to finding our deepest joy in him. Come, Lord Jesus. And then we can say with Paul, as he says in Philippians 1, and this is my translation, um, he's talking to the Philippians and he says, for me to live is Jesus. Like there's nothing else. Like he is my beloved and I am his beloved. There is nothing else. There is no higher thing. There's nothing else I could attain to. It's all about him. And to die is getting into our forever home with him. So living here is all about gathering fruit from the garden of our love. I gather fruit in my own life as I mature and he transforms me and sets me free from myself and the prison that that is. But I also gather fruit as he uses me as a vessel in our love to draw other people into his love as well. So there's fruit within, there's fruit without, and that's all beautiful. And as beautiful as that is, Paul says, even so, it is my desire to leave this body and be with Jesus because it is far better than anything I could ever experience here. And you and I spend so much time running from the very thing that we should be running to. <laughs> I'm trying to stay young in a, a broken, shallow sense. I want to stay in this life, this whacked out, broken wilderness, as long as I can and look as young as I can. When the very thing that I'm trying to run away from is the very thing I should be running to. Is Jesus come quickly. But here's the kicker. What Paul says in this passage is, Jesus loves me so much and desires me so much that if I'm remaining here, it must be necessary because of his love for you. That's the whole reason I'm still here. It's for the people that he's going to bring into my life because he wants me just as badly more than I want him. He wants me. So why would he not just immediately draw me into what's coming? Because he wants to draw you into what's coming too. And that's how he uses us. That's why we are here. That's the mission that Jesus talks about. The great commission is we are here because God is saying, I love you very much and I also love these other people and you are the vessels, you are me going to these people and bringing them in. They can experience the same life with us. And that's, we've already talked about that in this, this movement. Um, that's where covenant love always leads us is deeper into him and then further out to other people. 
And that's where we're going this, this fall as we study the book of Acts. We're talking about what it is to take this covenant love and go out and to invite others into that covenant love too. So we end this, this sermon, we end this whole series with this. Your Jesus is inviting you into deeper intimacy with him always. You are longing to be with him in a way that you have never experienced, to go back to a place you've never been. But follow his love and your longing to deeper life. Thrive in the garden with your beloved, even though you are still in the wilderness. He is preparing you and I for our forever home with him. And that day is coming. And when we are in our right minds, we say, bring it faster. Jesus, that is what I ask. I ask that you would change our tastes, change our desires, change our loves, and that we would say from the deepest places of our hearts because of what we've experienced with you, come, Lord Jesus. Come and, and bring us into an even deeper fellowship with you, into deeper intimacy with you. But Lord, please don't let us live in this lie that, that that doesn't start until the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, teach us how to live in gardens now with you, even in the wilderness. And we ask this in your name, amen.